Is that? I can hear myself, so that's good. Hello, everyone. How are you? My name is Dominic Divakaruni. Uh, this is a session for Amazon Elastic Inference. Uh, session ID is AIM366, just to make sure you're in the right place. Um, I'm Dominic Divakaruni. I'm a product manager at AWS. Uh, I've worked on Elastic Inference. Uh, I'm joined here by my colleague Sudipta Sengupta and our customers from Autodesk, Peter and Liviu. And uh, we are here to talk to you about um, Amazon Elastic Inference. First, to get started, I'd like to spend some time analyzing one of the main pain points we face in running deep learning workloads. Next, I'd like to share what we've brought to the table to help you address some of these issues as you add intelligence to your applications and scale these workloads. And last but not least, I'm thrilled to have our customer Autodesk here to share some of the ways that they're incorporating machine learning into their applications and how they're using EI to deploy these workloads efficiently and at scale. So first, uh, to take a step back and look at why this is important, um, we realize that today, more than at any time in the past, it's key for us to keep transforming our businesses and our customer experience in order to remain competitive. If you look at what's happened over the past few years, um, if you look at how some of these long-standing businesses have been completely disrupted by new players in a very short time, who've used machine learning on top of AWS to do so, it's pretty interesting. If you see what Pinterest has done in visual search, Airbnb has done in transportation, I'm sorry, hotels, what Lyft has done in transportation, and all these companies have done this using machine learning on top of AWS and have radically changed industries that have either existed for a very long time or that didn't exist before. So today, you have to be able to move fast and be very agile and have the cost structure in this environment to be competitive. So our focus is to provide our customers with the lowest cost infrastructure to enable this transformation. Now, if you look at the costs associated with running machine learning applications, we can divide them into two large categories. One's training, training models, and then making predictions with them in production, known as inference. We're constantly working to make models train faster and cheaper. Earlier this week, we announced the P3DN instances with larger 100 gig capacity network to train models faster, and yesterday, Andy announced enhancements to TensorFlow that improved GPU utilization to enable training of uh, ImageNet from 30 uh, minutes to 14 minutes, which is the fastest you can do today. But as, as many of you know, training is a small part of the cost equation uh, for, for an application. At the speed at which you can train applications today, it's inference that actually takes up the vast majority of the cost of running your application. Since applications are running 24-7, you often need the infrastructure to support it, also running 24-7. And that can get very costly. So if you look at the infrastructure that's available to support these applications, that support the applications that make up the 90% of the cost, right? The applications, the inference applications, we see a number of inefficiencies. First, when you have to use GPUs for inference, 
Standalone GPU instances are expensive and they're purpose-built for training. And because of that, they're oversized for inference. As inference ha happens to be a very different workload. While training jobs can process hundreds of data samples batched together in parallel very efficiently, most inference workloads only act on a single data sample at a time. And so a large portion of the GPU goes underutilized for inference workloads, especially online inference workloads. Second, models need very different amounts of GPU, CPU, and memory. Depending on the type of application, you may need very little CPU, um, x86 CPU and memory, may need higher amounts of GPU. For some language models, for instance, as we see, you need higher amounts of CPU and memory, very little GPU. So how do you mix and match if you size resources for the most demanding resource, you pick a GPU instance and size it for that, you often end up underutilizing the other resources. So we see these two areas of, of inefficiency that we want to help tackle for ourselves, we want to help tackle for our customers. And you, when you dive a little bit closer and look at the, um, the, the inference workloads and you, you see how much, um, capac how much throughput they drive out of the GPU, you'll see that for smaller batch sizes, this is an example of an Inception V3 model running on a P32XL instance using a Volta GPU, you'll see that for batch size one, you can drive about 100 images per second out of this GPU. And this isn't using TensorRT. This is just standard um, framework runtime running on an instance. But for larger batch sizes, you have, for a batch size of 64, for instance, you can generate up to upwards of 1,000 samples. So what that means is if you're applying a P32XL for inference, you're underutilizing about 90% of the GPU for smaller batch sizes. So as you deploy your application at scale, if you have 20 instances plus per AZ um, and uh, your application deployed across a couple regions, as you can see, the, the underutilization can be expensive. And so one of the approaches we see customers take to solve this problem is to run more concurrent sessions on a P32XL. And what we found is that it doesn't easily solve the problem, right? You'll, you'll have to do some very complicated and unique things in order to get better utilization out of the GPU. In fact, if you run more concurrent sessions, we've seen the throughput remain flat, and they all kind of timeshare the utilization of the GPU. And so if we, and then look, look from a different angle of which GPU do you choose? Do you choose a P2XL, which we launched a couple years ago, or a P32XL, which we launched at, at last reInvent? You'll see that customers tend to choose the P3, P2XL for batch size one inference, as it's a lot more cost effective on a cost per inference basis than a P32XL. For batch size 64, the, the dynamic flips. You can get a lot more out of a P32XL, so it's a lot more cost efficient. So, pardon me here. So now, once you've chosen between the lesser of two evils for your application, 
how do you address the challenge of utilization? How do you address the right sizing of resources? That's, that problem still exists, right? So we're, we're happy to tell you that we've, we are, we're able to address that problem for you with Amazon Elastic Inference. Having a little problem with the slides here, apologize. Amazon Elastic Inference, or Amazon EI for short, helps you lower the cost of running inference by up to 75% by giving you the right amounts of GPU acceleration that's right-sized for inference. EI helps you attach these quantities of inference acceleration to any instance type. That way, if you have a language model that needs um, a higher amount of memory and wants to run on an R4 instance or an X1E instance, you can choose that instance type and attach a small amount of acceleration and right-size resources and save yourselves money. Amazon Elastic Inference is available and integrated with EC2 and SageMaker. Um, so it's convenient to launch it with any instance on EC2. And on SageMaker, it provides you a fully managed experience at low cost. We support, out of the box, TensorFlow models, Apache MXNet, and Onyx models, and more framework support, more model support is coming soon. Now, EI accelerators are available in three sizes today with different amounts of uh, throughput and memory. For uh, the medium accelerator, you get one tera operations per second, short as tops, uh, of single precision FP32 compute. You get a commensurate amount of FP16 um, in a much larger quantity, and you get one gig of accelerator memory. Uh, the price entry point for that is 13 cents an hour. That's significantly cheaper than uh, a GPU instance that, so that starts at 90 cents an hour or $3 an hour for um, a P32XL. You have three different sizes depending on the amount, depending on the latency and throughput needs of your application. So you can try one of these accelerators with the instance type that your application requires and, and determine if that fits your needs. It's available today in six regions. More regions are coming soon. Three regions in, a, in the United States, Northern Virginia, Ohio, and uh, Oregon, and Dublin, Tokyo, and South Korea. So the big question with all this is, with these smaller amounts of acceleration than a full GPU, what does it mean for, for, for performance? Well, I'm glad to tell you that in many cases, EI Elastic Inference performs better than a P2 X-Large instance. Here are the inferences per second for three popular computer vision models, two of them with image classification, one for object detection. And the gray bars that you see are um, Elastic Inference accelerators paired with a very small CPU instance and the costs associated with that and how they compare to the GPU instances. The, the pink bar is a P2X large at 90 cents, and the orange bar is a P32X large at $3. In, in all three cases, EI does better than a P32XL and is way more cost effective. But for your application, your application's needs, it may vary. So we encourage you to try out different sizes to, to see what fits your application needs. 
P32XL, as you can see, is, is, is a lot more performant than any of the EI sizes. So our goal at AWS is to provide you with a range of um, options, the right tool for the right job, as Andy put it yesterday. So you can choose what you need for your model without any code changes and um, run your applications in production. So how does elastic inference work? Uh, it, uh, it connects to a, an EC2 instance. You configure your instance to launch with an accelerator. And the instance launches um, with a attached accelerator behind a VPC endpoint. So you first need to provision a uh, AWS private link VPC endpoint. Uh, for your VPC and your availability group, you only need to do that once. You don't incur any additional charges for VPC endpoints. And all the accelerators that are launched in that availability zone are behind uh, that VPC endpoint, and all your instances talk to it um, from uh, using, using that connectivity. EI accelerators are, are available as an option in launch templates, so you can scale it automatically in auto-scaling groups. It's, it's fairly easy to work with. Um, EI accelerators, along with EC2 instances, act as a unit of scale, and auto-scaling groups automatically scale up and down the capacity that you need. It also works with SageMaker. You can prototype the deployments of um, your model with, with notebooks, uh, and you can iterate on them, and you can test performance in what's known as local mode uh, for SageMaker notebooks. If you haven't checked out one of the SageMaker classes, I encourage you to do that. It takes away a lot of the heavy lifting of running and deploying models in production, training, prototyping training, and running models in production. And then once you've prototyped your deployments in, in notebook mode, in local mode, you can deploy your models to endpoints with low-cost inference acceleration. And SageMaker manages it all for you. So let's talk about what models are supported and how we go about supporting them. We support TensorFlow, Apache MXNet, and Onyx models at launch. Models support for additional model types are coming soon. What we provide you to be able to run these models are Amazon EI-enabled TensorFlow Serving and Amazon EI-enabled Apache MXNet for MXNet and Onyx. What we've done is we've taken one of these frameworks, or taken TensorFlow Serving, for instance, and added in the capa capability to automatically detect accelerators when one's available. So you don't, because you don't have a locally attached GPU, you have a network-attached accelerator. We wanted to build in the capability, the mechanism, to automatically de detect the presence of one of these things, securely allow you to connect to it through IAM policies, and distribute the computation of your model between the local instance and the remote accelerator. These packages are available within the AWS Deep Learning AMIs. They're also available on S3 for, for download, and um, they're provided to you automatically in SageMaker when you select an endpoint configured with Elastic Inference. Here's an example of loading and serving models using TensorFlow. Uh, very simple, you download the TensorFlow serving binary. 
you provide the, the base path of your model, everything works as, as it would with uh, standard TensorFlow serving. The only difference is here you're, you're obtaining our package uh, that we provide to you either via the Deep Learning AMI or an S3 or automatically through SageMaker, and you load your model and make inference calls. No changes to your code whatsoever. With MXNet, the only configuration change is um, setting the context to mx.eia, just as you would mx.cpu or mx.gpu. You load the models the same way. You make inference calls the same way. Nothing else changes. For Onyx models, MXNet provides a very convenient import model API. Nothing changes with that either. You just simply set the context as mx.eia to load models and make inference calls. So how do you choose? The world with elastic inference is slightly different than a local GPU. You have uh, a call over the network instead of calls via PCIe to the local <laughs> GPU. So there are considerations and trade-offs you'll need to make. The size of your payload, your size of your tensor payload from your instance to the accelerator has a bearing on the amount of latency you will incur. So the, the benchmarks I showed before are for standard image workloads with uh, 224 by 224 image sizes. Uh, Livio will go into the uh, Autodesk's workload with um, a much larger set of images that are pumped into the model. So you need to try out uh, sizes of accelerators with instances, start small, determine if that meets the latency needs of your application. Uh, to, to right size this environment, you have to calculate the overall latency budget. Let's say, for instance, your application needs to respond within 200 milliseconds. Uh, you have your authentication and other overhead on your application that takes about 100 milliseconds. And you essentially have a budget of about 100 milliseconds to work with for your inference call. So you try out a combination of an instance and an accelerator. You see if that meets your needs, um, your throughput need, your latency needs. If not, you size up. You go to a larger size accelerator. You, you choose a different instance type uh, that, that may work for you. Um, if you are not running your models today in FP16, I know it's early days. A lot of, lot of us are, um, are, uh, are starting to use FP16 with uh, the Volta GPUs. Uh, it, it highly encourage using FP16. It's a much more cost-effective, much more abundant uh, type of um, compute that's available for you within an accelerator. And, and at this point, I'd like to turn it over to Autodesk, uh, to our customers Peter and, and Livio, to walk us through their use cases and uh, share a little bit about how they use EI. Cool. Thank you, Dominic. How's everyone doing today? Good? Thursday? We're almost done? Did anyone run the race on Tuesday? No hands? Yeah, good. One. Wow, just one. Well, I ran it two. Did you run as fast as you could and still didn't win? That's, yeah, same for me. Fast as I could. So I even developed a runner's hack, so I have my water bottle here just in case. So I'll try not to cough in your ears. Um, my name is Peter Jones. I'm head of AI engineering in the Autodesk AI lab. And I'm going to talk to you for a minute on uh, how we see AI affecting the future of design. So first, let me tee up some of the problems we see happening. Today in the world, the population is about 7.5 billion. 
and that's projected to be 10 billion by 2050. So the world's growing. Uh, some good news about that as well, the middle class is growing. About 400,000 people join the middle class every day. But that also presents a challenge for us because those people want more. They want more food, more water, they consume more electricity, they want more goods. And so this could become a problem, right? How do we make and how do we allow uh, us to serve those needs of more that people want without causing negative impact on our environment? Because remember, the more we make, the fewer natural resources we have left. And today, you know, we do have waste, right? 30% of the waste in, in the world is from construction. 70% of spare parts for all of our goods are never used. So this kind of thing has to change. So how do we make all that, we, you know, all that humanity wants and needs without impacting our environment as much? How do, we, how do we reduce the depletion of resources, have less waste, less carbon emissions? So we see this as a capacity issue. We have to rethink how we make things. And for us, since we make software for design, this is the biggest design opportunity we've ever had. So at Autodesk, we make software for people that make things. Uh, we help our customers design and make things from skyscrapers to smart cars, from bridges to blockbusters. Our tools help them design and make what they can envision. And we see this as an opportunity to do things better. And we see AI and machine intelligence as a key piece of how design will change in the future. So I'm going to walk you through just two examples of how we see that changing now. And then we'll, we'll kind of dive a little deeper into machine learning models. And I'll turn it over to Livio, who will talk more about how we use elastic, elastic inference for some of our models. So first use case is construction. Um, this is a family-owned construction business in the Netherlands, the Van Wynens. And they specialize in affordable, sustainable construction. So their goal is to make cost-effective housing with zero net energy uh, footprint because of the solar panels. So the first problem they had was they built houses like most houses are built today, which is custom-built, on-site, with whatever the configuration is that it was called for by the customer. That tends to take time, tends to produce waste, and tends to reduce uh, profit and raise cost. So first thing they did is they deconstructed their house into modular components. So now they could make any combination of their house layout, which they had over 100, and they could do it on-site in three days. So they, they really optimized how they assemble. This is one pattern we see happening a lot in Autodesk where construction and manufacturing are merging. And so they basically took a manufacturing approach. They studied cars and planes and how they were built and said, hey, we can apply this to houses. Good, good first step, right? So we worked with them to take it to the next step, which is, okay, now I can build a house in any one of many configurations that I know how to do. How do I design whole neighborhoods? And how do I do that in a way that's optimal for all the different houses in that neighborhood? So we used a generative design technique, and we used, uh, there it is, um, we modeled out eight different goals of design, things like the size of the backyard, the view from the person inside the house, the exposure to the sun, but we also had goals for the business, like cost and profit. And we fed this to a genetic algorithm, and it walked through over 15,000 design alternatives, all of which are valid. These are not like design possibilities that cannot work. They can all work, but the designer now thinks at a higher level, which is how do I want to balance you know, yard size versus solar gain? Which of those are more important? This kind of designing in the large, we call it, this kind of exploring the design space, we see as one critical piece of how design will change in the future. 
because it allows you to sort of balance things like affordability versus livability and sustainability versus profitability. Here's a different case for manufacturing. So we work with General Motors. What you see there on the left is their um, seat belt bracket that they use today. That's eight different components. And <clears throat> we, again, applied uh, a genetic algorithm to that, and we also used uh, additive manufacturing techniques, which are new these days. And we were able to come up with a single part instead of eight that was 40% lighter and 20% stronger. And it still fits the same form factor of the original part. So it doesn't change anything in terms of the, the overall manufacturing process. This kind of idea of where you use machine intelligence to explore the design space and come up with an alternative that you may not have considered or thought of if you just used a human to attack the design problem is one of the pieces that we see as the future of design. Imagine if you asked a design team to explore 15,000 alternative designs. Well, number one, they, they wouldn't even do that many because it would take too long. And number two, you know, how many people have heard about cognitive bias, right? There's, there's 184 known documented biases in how we think. And that's very present in design because today design is all done by humans. We're not trying to replace humans by any means, but we think machine intelligence can help them really explore the entire vast options for design so then they can hone in on what makes the most sense for their goals. Okay, let's go a little deeper into machine learning. So in the Autodesk AI lab, we're focused on finding novel and impactful machine learning techniques and algorithms to really push the envelope of how design will change in the future. One such kind of um, <clears throat> machine learning model that we like is uh, multi-view convolutional neural networks. Has anyone used those, MVCNNs? Okay, so a couple. So in a nutshell, you have an object, you know, you take a picture of it from di different angles and you rotate it around. So you end up with 80 different pictures of a single object, and that's what you see here. Those are four different samples of four different objects, uh, 80 shots of that. And you feed that to a network, and it understands fairly clearly how to reason about that 3D uh, piece of geometry. It understands it from, from multiple angles and, and rotations, and therefore it's a very stable network to really understand what that geometry is built of, and it can classify it and understand its form and function. And we do that so that then you can do things like you can really apply an algebra to, to manipulating geometric, uh, geometric figures. So on the top there you have a vase, right, and you can sort of um, decide, okay, and first of all, it understands just from classification that that base has a lip and a base and a center, and I can sort of subtract out a center that's too wide, and I can replace it with a center that's more narrow. And then it can synthesize a brand new object that, that meets those constraints. One of the things we do with our um, convolutional neural, neural networks is we also want to run them backwards. So we want them not just for encoding and classification, but we want them for decoding and generation. That's very key to us because remember, Part of our problem space is we're helping designers figure out the design that they want. So that means we, you know, we, the machine needs to be able to produce content that they may decide they want to use. So a key point. Um, second thing we found is that for some kind of 3D models, geometry and voxels and all the things you typically see in computer vision and, and that aspect of research um, is not always the best way to represent a 3D model. And so we also are heavily act, uh, involved in point clouds because point clouds, so a point cloud, you might take the same object and shoot a bunch of random points around it. And you might only come up with a couple thousand points. So in some ways, the data set that represents the model is a lot narrower and smaller than a graphic data set. And we found for some 
kinds of applications, point clouds are actually more effective than geometry models for uh, classification and also for then synthesis and, and regeneration on the other side of what we think a synthetic output would be. Um, now, if you think about the software that we make, right, you saw earlier, you saw genetic algorithms, which I said is sort of designing in the large. It's looking at a lot of different design possibilities. But there's other aspects of design that are not sort of in the large. They're what I would call in the small, which is they're looking at specific parts and they're generating a 3D model about how to represent that part. And the machine learning techniques that we're injecting into our products, and by the way, I can't show you them today, I'm sorry. A lot of those will be released in next year in 2019, so you'll have to imagine that, apologize for that. Um, you can imagine a designer in, in something like a manufacturing project, you know, designing out what a phone looks like. And alongside of it, you might have a, you know, a whole bunch of neural networks watching what the designer's doing and figuring out where they're going and then maybe suggesting, hey, have you thought about this kind of transistor for this case? Or have you thought about you know, finishing your building in this way? Um, so that's sort of a suggestive idea. And to do that, we've got to generate real-time you know, 3D imagery or 3D models right when the user is interacting with the product. And that's why um, Elastic Inference was interesting to us, because today we run those models on GPUs. Um, another kind of example you could see is where a designer is building a building, you know, does the basic uh, kind of uh, outline, and then could say, hey, you know, computer or Siri or whatever that thing is named, you know, please finish out the interior layout of this and generate all the, the layout for, you know, desks and chairs and whatnot. Again, a problem that is, um, needs real-time response is looking at both model information and geometry information and then reasoning about it and then also generating results. And so, as I mentioned, we've had success with those models and many of them need GPU power and we've run them today on GPU instances. So when we heard about the Elastic Inference uh, feature, we thought, okay, that's pretty cool because you know, we're not, the designer is not every second needing to be prompted with geometry. So those instances, the, the current GPU instances we use today were not fully utilized. Um, so Livy will take you deeper into that, but before I give it over to him, um, we found that it's quite performant and it also solves a different problem, which is we don't have to segment as much our infrastructure for inference on GPU versus inference on CPU. You know, basically that can be the same box and you can segment things by your Docker container or by your libraries and decide how you want to do that. So it's been pretty compelling for us. We ran some models through tests and uh, Liviu now will take you through that. And I think we need to push a special button. Bottom right. There we go. You're Magic. There we go. Great, so thank you. So uh, I'll just give a small overview of what I'll talk about here. Uh, I'll talk about a couple of the example models that we use. Uh, I'll talk about how to start the Elastic Inference uh, instance from the command line and from the console. Uh, take, a, take you through a couple steps needed that we had to change our model slightly so that we can use it with it. And then a small demo of it just running uh, in AWS. So first off here, and sorry, I'm gonna have to stand behind the podium because I have to be attached to the computer. So the first model here uh, that we are looking at is this multi-view convolutional neural network that Peter had talked about. Just a little more details in it. It's essentially a convolutional neural network, a 2D one, that will take your images and compress them into smaller and smaller sizes, followed by a maximum operation that gets your data into this uh, compressed feature vector that's only a one-dimensional vector, and it encodes uh, all the data needed to describe that 3D model. 
So you can either use it, uh, use the embedding to compare it to other type of uh, models that you have, the other type of vectors, and easily cluster them or see similarities and differences. Or you can use a classifier to then that's been trained to say, oh, this is a chair, this is an airplane, or some other object. And the one big advantage of working in this way with multi-view is that the 3D object that you're looking at, you don't need a 3D convolution to do this. By taking the multiple images and processing it this way, you're just doing uh, 2D convolutions. So it's, mu it's much more efficient. Another type of model that we use is a variational autoencoder. It follows a similar principle as the previous one, where you have an encoder part to get your data down into a, a dense feature vector and a decoder part that then tries to recreate the original object. That's where the auto part comes in, that it's the input and the output are, uh, are attempted to be the same thing. And the variational part is that the vectors that you get are essentially sampled from a, a, a what do you call it, a Gaussian distribution, so that you can also easily create new types of data by just sampling that uh, Gaussian distribution and coming up with new images in that space. So how would you actually set up uh, your instance with elastic inference? Well, it's pretty much just like setting up an EC2 instance. The only, uh, yeah, so you would just choose the deep learning AMI, as Dom had mentioned, and you would pass the reference to the type of accelerator that you want to use, the medium, large, extra large. And there's that one extra step where you only have to define once is to put an endpoint on your VPC so that your EC2 instance can communicate to the accelerator. Because as Dom said, it's over, it's not on the machine, it's over the network. So what this would look like from a command line, it would just be your standard uh, EC2 run instances where you'd pass in the, the uh, image ID that you need, the deep learning AMI, the type of instance you want to use, could be any type. The one main thing that stands out is that you would pass in the elastic inference accelerator type of either medium, large, extra large. Now that you have your instance there, how would you use it? Well, we used it with TensorFlow because our models are written in TensorFlow. So we'd, we would have to first create the model, uh, save it as a saved model to use with serving, because again, we use our models in TensorFlow and they're done with estimators. So we had to convert those to save models to use with the TensorFlow serving. And then in another uh, process, you would send the request to that server to predict with whatever test data you want to use. And elastic inferencing takes care of seeing which parts can be accelerated and sending uh, the right operations to the, to the accelerator, so you don't have to worry about that at all. So how did we create a save model from a TF uh, estimator format? Well, from our example before of the MVCNN, what we expected from our input images as our input would be a bunch of multi-view grayscale images called images. And the dimensions of them were, were the batch size, which in this case would just be one as we're passing one piece of data at a time, the number of views, which could be 20, 80, the number of multi-views that you have, the width and height of the picture, like 128 by 128 or 256 by 256, and the number of color channels, which in this case would just be one. So we loaded in our saved trained classifier, sorry, our saved estimator. We wanted to define what the program expects so that that can pass it into the model. So we wanted to define a, a, this image array of one, one batch size, 80 views, 
128 by 128 size and grayscale. Uh, and that would be what the model takes in. We mapped, we had this map of the name images to that tensor so that when we build a request and say, this array, this multi-view image array that we have called images should map to this tensor, which will then go into the model. And you export the save model, just pass in the directory, and this long-looking function that essentially just does what I said, that when you pass in something to the images uh, name, it would put it into the images tensor that will be passed into the model. There's some phones up, so I'll give you two seconds for this. One, two, three. So uh, now that we have that saved model, how would we uh, predict with it? So we would, as I mentioned before, one process will serve the model uh, that we have saved, and another process will send the request to it to get uh, the results. So the process that serves the model, uh, these were in DOM slides too, but essentially you just call the uh, elastic inference version of TensorFlow serving, pass in whatever model name you want to call it, where the model is, and the port that it's listening on. On the other side, on, in the program that's then calling that, uh, there's a lot of things here that might look a little more complicated, but it's all really just part of the standard example serving code, just adjusted to this. So the main point here is that we define the port we want to look at. Uh, a bunch of other things just to create the requests that we're gonna send the data in through. Uh, specify the name of it, the name that we used before. And we have a, a function here called getNextInput that just takes the next piece of data, the next multi-view image array. Uh, we load that in, and that gets put into the request in this way, that the input called images will take this input array with this given shape, and then it will know to, make a, to turn that into the tensor that will be passed into the model. And finally, now that your, result, your request is built, uh, you just call predict with it and you get your result back. So at this point, I just want to show one, how this would be done in the console, how you would start Elastic Inference in the console, and just do a quick uh, demo of this code that I had showed. So from the console, if instead of running it from the uh, command line, you wanted to start the Elastic Inference from a console in EC2, console. <laughs> You're making an EC2 instance. Uh, I'll give it back to him, but really the provisioning sequence is quite similar. Um, let's go back a slide anyways. So uh, to fill in the gaps, you know, when you provision an instance through the console, right, you go to the EC2 console, you pick your AMI. All that's the same. There's a checkbox that you'll see soon um, that gives you the choice of the kind of uh, EI estimator that you want. And that's pretty much it. So um, imagine that, if you will. To fill in more details on the console, How are we doing? Yeah. thank you, Peter. Um, the launch templates uh, view in uh, the EC2 console also lets you do that. There's a new box for uh, Elastic Inference. Check that, select the accelerator type you want, and that uh, forms your launch, uh, launch template, which you can load into your auto scaling group, uh, SageMaker at the various steps in SageMaker where you point out the infrastructure you need. Elastic Inference is also there available as an option. Um, I, a few more bits of information. It's, um, at launch, it's available in CloudFormation, so you can launch instances with accelerators in CloudFormation. 
and uh, metrics and the health of an accelerator is available in CloudWatch. So you can get that information there. Yeah, um, just a shout out to CloudFormation. Thank you, Dominic, for having it live in CloudFormation on the release. How many of you are CloudFormation users? Yeah, right? How many times have you had to not always see your feature first time? So this is awesome that day one, when it's released, you can use it in CloudFormation. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. And we're... Do you think, will the console be any um, better? Happy to take some questions uh, in the meantime while we get this sorted out. Um, does anyone have, uh... yes, sir? Um, Peter, you mind? Oh, here. If you tell me what it is, I'll re replay the question for you. Yeah. yeah. So the question was, from the three that you have, kind of small, medium, large, how do you infer that and map that back, Dominic, to the hardware underneath it to get a better sense of what, what hardware is being used? Yes, so at launch, you can attach one EIA uh, instance to every base instance. So if you take a CPU instance, for example, you can attach one EIA, as you will see in the console, and you go through the frameworks, TensorFlow and MXNet, as Dom explained. So the framework does the automatic discovery of the attached elastic inference accelerator, and it intelligently uh, optimizes your model graph to do the inference across the local CPU instance and the remote accelerator. Same hardware or not? Yeah. It's, it's more, as, as you saw on the slide with, um, I have a mic in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, for the, the each, each one of those sizes, the amount of throughput and capacity doubles. So a large yes, has twice the amount of capacity as a medium. The extra large has twice the amount of capacity as a large. <coughs> so you have more, G more GPU-powered acceleration that's available for you uh, with each of those sizes. Um, th think of it as capacity, not, not, as, not as chips. And again, it's going to vary. So the, the performance numbers that I showed on the, on the screen are specific to those models, right? And you, you'll see performance vary quite a bit from model to model. So you, you really need to try it out. It's not, so your model's running on an amount of, of GPU-powered acceleration. It's not um, one chip or four chips. So, so the important point can you note here is uh, what you see as the customer are the physical resources that are reserved for your accelerator. That includes uh, tera operations per second, tops capacity at two different precisions, as was mentioned in the table, FP16, FP32, um, and also memory. And we reserve resources in the accelerator depending on the size of the accelerator that you have provisioned. So you don't need to worry about you know, how many chips are there, 
or how they are partitioned, you know, whether they are sharing resources, etc. Because we guarantee the resources that are specified in uh, those three different sizes, depending on the size you choose. And we can speak further about yeah. the question you have. Uh, since we're, the console's yeah. come up now, why don't we go ahead and Why don't we pause that? there and give poor Livy a chance to finish, because he's rocking and ready with his demo. About five more minutes, and we'll have time for questions afterwards. Great. So thanks for a word from our sponsor there. That was helpful. Now back to the program. So to uh, create the instance, you, just, you would launch a normal instance from uh, the EC2 console, and you would choose the deep learning AMI, either Linux or Ubuntu, uh, whichever one you wish. Again, you can choose any CPU instance that you want to work with. In this case, we could just keep it as the default. And the main thing that stands out here is there is now this elastic inference option that you would select to use elastic inference with your instance. So there are two things you'll see that pop up. One is you need an IAM role that is allowed to connect to that instance. There's also protections of whether you can talk to that or not. Uh, I have uncreated, so that's fine. And the other thing is it'll point out that you need that uh, VPC endpoint for elastic inference. And so either you can create it or if you use the subnet that already has that created, that issue now goes away. And from here, this is where you would choose the three different types of elastic inference accelerators that are available. And then you would go and launch. You want to point something out? By, by the way, quick clarification. Um, how, how many of you have heard of the deep learning AMI? OK, good, good number. Um, they are, uh, for those who haven't, uh, they contain all the, the deep learning AMIs are available for Amazon Linux and Ubuntu in uh, the AWS Marketplace. You can also find it in the Quick Start menu, as Liviu just showed. And they contain all the popular deep learning frameworks, the hardware acceleration drivers, so it's a pre-baked thing that's available for you that you can launch and uh, run your models. Great. So how would this actually run? So I have a <laughs> another issue. <laughs> there it goes. Well, this part would be the uh, imagine just a demo where I have a saved model. In one process, I would run the server. And in another process, I would just run the client, which would do some inference on it. Uh, we don't have to worry too much about that at this point now. Well, actually, I can't really show the results. So, uh, there we go. Yeah. There we go. Now that we're back to this one. All right. Wow. No, this is fine. Oh, I don't need any more. Yeah. So what sort of results do we get from this, from the MVCNN model? There's a picture in a picture. I don't know why that's there. What we see, what I've what I shown here is the three different cases. One, just running with the CPU. Two, running with the GPU. And three, with elastic inference. Now, running with the CPU, we see that we only pay maybe 20 cents an hour. It's pretty cheap. But the inference time is quite high. Whereas with the GPU, whereas with the, GPU the cost is quite high, 90 cents an hour. But the inference time is very low, about 50 milliseconds. Now, the EI instance here, using the same CPU as a CPU instance and with an EIA medium, costs about a third of the GPU. And it performs, it's a, about twice as slow. But as an overall saving, there, there is the saving in terms of both time and cost. Now, I haven't shown here the using it with medium or large. 
But if you use it with those, because of the extra provisioned throughput and the extra power, that time will go down as the cost goes up. The other case we looked at, the variational autoencoder, a similar idea with CPU and GPU that CPU is cheap and slow, GPU is more expensive and fast. And in this case, this model was quite big. Uh, the whole saved model was about four and a half gigabytes, the whole train model. The saved model was a little less than that. And so for our needs, we could only run it on an EIA X large. And that's why uh, this e the, the cost point for the EI one is higher because it's using a CPU plus EIA one X large. But what we see is that even though it's more expensive than just a smaller EIA, it's both cheaper than the GPU and faster than the GPU. So in this case, we were able to get a performance increase uh, at a small uh, fraction of the cost. And so I'm sorry for all the issues with the <laughs> presentation, but thank, thank you. you. <laughs> so I'll throw it back to Dom now. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. So what um, was kind of shown there in the, um, in the graphs towards the end is that um, depending on your budget, which is both in terms of latency as well as cost, you have AWS now provides a number of options, three different EI sizes and a number of GPU sizes as well uh, that you can take advantage of depending on your latency and uh, the, the price you want to pay. So, so you have choice, and there's, there's, you can do that without any code changes. So just to wrap up with a quick summary, EI accelerators are available for EC2 and SageMaker in a number of sizes. They help reduce costs of running inference by up to 75%. Uh, you, can you can configure any instance type. You're not limited to any instance, particular instance type for attaching an accelerator. So you can choose uh, the right tool that works for you. It's also available in CloudFormation. Um, so you uh, can programmatically launch your instances and templatize those. You can deploy TensorFlow, MX, and Anonyx models with no code changes. And you can find a lot of the information um, about how to use the product and uh, some additional resources at our website. And there, there is also, uh, it's also available on AWS forums. And uh, within the, the documentation, you can find a um, handy email address to reach us in case you have issues or you'd, uh, you'd like some questions answered. So thank you very much for taking the time to attend today. Hope you had a great reInvent. Hope you enjoy the replay party uh, later tonight. And uh, please do complete your uh, session survey in the mobile app. Thank you very much. <laughs>